Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Um, let me get my title here. What do I do with my schedule? I'm going to buy you. Okay, welcome to this session on a design for living as a parent. My name is Mike, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Dave and I will be facilitating this session, Dave H. from Nashville, or technically Franklin, Tennessee. Each of us will share our recovery on this topic, then we will take time to answer questions. Questions will be taken from the Ask It basket. If you wish to participate, write your question on a 3 by 5 card and place it on the basket on the table. I think those things are in the back somewhere. Um, <clears throat> and if people want to just raise their hands, that's fine too. Just remind us to repeat the question so it gets into the recording. In the spirit of the fifth trad- tradition, To carry the message, this is a recorded session. The recording equipment will not be turned off during the session. We ask that you silence all cell phones. Um, And I'm kind of a stickler for that. If you really need to use your phone, I'd appreciate it if you'd uh, step outside for a while and come back in uh, rather than distract folks at the meeting. Let's start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not mine be done. I can already tell that something's catching in my throat here this afternoon, so if anybody gets a chance to run a water up here, I'd appreciate it. Um, Okay, parenting and recovery. Uh, Again, I'm Mike, recovering sexaholic. Glad I'm here sober tonight through God's grace and you people. My sobriety date is June 3rd of 1984. just, uh, I'm assuming most are, because you're in this session, but just out of curiosity, uh, how many folks here are parents? Just about everybody. Okay, I figured, but I just wanted to be sure. <clears throat> so I got married in 1984. Uh, I was three months sober at the time, Sec- three months sexually sober at the time. Don't necessarily recommend that, but that's how it played out in my case. Um, We didn't have kids for uh, four years into our marriage, uh, and that was a good thing. And it was a good thing because uh, I was fairly new to sexual recovery, um, and it just gave us time to... We we had dated for seven years before we got married, but most of that seven years, um, certainly more than half of it, was uh, I was abusively, alcoholically drinking, and... uh, uh, acting out sexually um, in some pretty devastating ways to the woman who became my wife. So it was good for us to have time uh, before we had kids. Um, in uh, August of 1988, we were blessed to have a son, James, who I can't believe, I was just talking to Dave about this, he's now 31 years old. <laughs> I think the first time probably Dave heard me talk, he was like probably three months old. Um, and then... Uh, a few years later, uh, we had a miscarriage in between, 
And then a few years later, uh, we had Mary Kate uh, in 1995. Um, so I don't know exactly what about parenting and recovery. Uh, Tom came up and said, two questions people want to know. One is, when did you kind of reveal you were in the program? And the other is, you know, did you have a talk with them about the M word, the M word being masturbation? Um, you know, my father, to his credit, and I, I said this in the last session I did this morning, uh, lost 20 pounds trying to tell me the facts of life when I was in sixth or seventh, seventh grade. And, um, you know, and I always look back on it with a mixture of, you know, just total admiration that he had the guts to at least try and, and a lot of sympathy for the poor man because he, it was the most nervous moment of his life, at least that I experienced, excuse me. Anyways, uh, I didn't even try. I just, I never talked about that with my son. Um, I don't know. I just didn't. I never had the talk. Uh, by the time I would have had it, he, he knew he knew how it all worked anyway, and physically. And um, what I did, what I did do is I tried to be a good father to him. I tried to be present to him uh, from the very earliest days of his life. I took every Friday off and spent Friday with him while my wife went to work, and I continued that through my daughter's life. And that, it may have been a gift to them, I hope so, but boy, was it a gift to myself uh, because I did not want to be one of those guys who got to be 55 years old and said, gee, I wish I had gotten to know my kids better. I, I got to know my kids really, really well, and they got to know me really well, and most of that was good and some of it wasn't. Um, uh, the other question, which I've already forgotten because, you know, if I say the M word, I go into... Blank. You know, you, you, if you're an Irish sexaholic, you can act out, but you, you, you can't talk about it, even after 30 years of recovery, without waves of embarrassment and losing your place. But, um, oh, I know, yeah, about getting into the program. Well, the, the story with my son is actually pretty funny. He was probably 12 or 13, and we were driving down the uh, expressway one day, and he said to me, Dad, I know you're in that AA program, but are you in another, he asked me, he said, are you in another program called Sexaholics Anonymous? And, uh, yeah, I almost ran my car into the side of the expressway, because I didn't know this was coming. And I, as, as happens, when my kids ask me questions that I, I don't have a ready answer for, what happens is I don't think about whether or not to lie, I think about which lie to tell. <laughs> like they start, you know how they say when you die, your life passes through you. I don't know, but when I, when that happens, lies start lining up. Like I can see them in print. But I took a deep breath and I, I said, and I quote, "As a matter of fact, I am." Why do you ask? Well, in the early days, the white book wasn't white. It had a title page and cover and all this stuff, and that's the book I still have at home. He saw it on my shelf and took it out, I guess, and started reading it and asked me a question. So I said, oh, okay. And I thought, now I know why they made it a white book. <laughs> why didn't they do that earlier? But uh, <clears throat> so I said to him, well, just like my AA program is a program for people who used to drink so much that it was a really bad thing for them to ever do it again. My essay program was, uh, was a program for people who used to lust so much and act out that lust with people other than, I didn't get into a lot of detail, with people other than their spouses that, uh, that you know, they should never really do that again. And I have never done that again. 
Um, and he said, okay. And I said, do you have any more questions? And he might have had one or two, but he didn't have many. And I said, uh, whenever you have a question, you let me know. And that was it. And it seemed to go fine. Um, my daughter was a whole different story. And I think some of that is just because she's a girl. And some of it is just that, how can I put it? Unfortunately, my son experienced, although, although I was both sober from alcohol and lust my son's whole life, the quality of my recovery in, some, in, in I'd say, the first 15 years of his life was not, uh, was not as good as it was for almost all of my daughter's life. That's just the reality. My anger, I, I lashed out at my son in anger probably only three times in my life, but three times was enough to leave a lasting imprint on him. My daughter and I seemed to have a magical relationship from the moment she was born. I don't know how this happened. I don't believe I did anything to earn it. But, um, you know, my sister has a saying about me. She says, uh, you know, you're a great guy, but you're high maintenance. And <laughs> you want to talk everything out. You, you know, you got a lot of energy, a lot of emotions. You're easily hurt. She said, now on the other side, that sensitivity makes you very empathic with other people. So there's a good side to it. But let's face it, you're high maintenance. And, you know, my wife never comments when my sister says this, but she, she never disagrees either. <laughs> The only low-maintenance relationship I've ever had is with my daughter. It's just come easy. Uh, and so as she got into her teen years and then college years, you know, I was like, well, I should probably, of course she knows I'm an A. I should probably tell her I'm an essay, but I just kept putting it off. I just didn't want to do it. And the truth was I didn't want her to know I was a sexaholic. Not because I intellectually thought it was the wrong thing to tell her. No, I thought it was the right thing. I didn't want to tarnish my image with her. I just didn't. And uh, I was at a conference in Utah where they asked me to come speak. And at a Q&A session, much like the one we'll have in a few minutes, uh, a young gal got up and asked me if I told my daughter. Because I'd been talking about my kids. And I said, not yet. And she said, well, I wish you would because my dad died last year and he never told me and I found out indirectly and it devastated me. And I said, oh. So she said, this kid, you know, she says, so are you going to do it? <laughs> and I said, yes. She said, when? I'm like, this isn't a Q&A. And I'm like, I'm like, boy, oh boy. I said, I will do it in the next 365 days. And she said, okay, that's good enough for me. So about 364 days later, <laughs> in 22 hours and 12 minutes, and the 22-12 is an exaggeration, the 364 is not. Uh, I, said, uh, I sat down with my daughter. I decided it would be good to have my wife there, just that was my instinct. And I said, uh, I just want to tell you something. I can't tell this story. That's the problem. I, every time I try to tell this story, I can't get through it. I said, uh, you know this AA thing, blah, 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 similar to what I'd said to my son. I said, I'm also in a program called Sexaholics Anonymous. I told her what it was about. And uh, I got done, and I said the same thing I said to my son. Do you have any questions? I don't think she did, or if she did, I don't remember them. And uh, 
And then I did what, I, what I'm trying not to do now. I just burst into tears. And I said, I needed to tell you, and you get to think whatever you want to think about it. And she said, I'm just glad you've been doing it all those years because it's never been a problem for me. I've never, you know, I've, I've known that I could trust you completely and totally from day one. I can, and then she said, and I kind of knew there was something because, you know, you try to be quiet, Dad, but, you know, even though you have your door closed, I hear you talking to these people every day, and I'm thinking, boy, you know, for all these alcoholics, they sure have a lot of issues about sex. You know, know, something along those lines. And uh, she came up and threw her arms around me, and uh, I knew knew it was okay, you know. I knew it was okay. So... um, so those were the two ask it back get questions we got before even the talk. Um, you know, parenting and recovery has been the great joy of my life. My only regret is that I can't do it again. I, honestly, I, I say to my wife sometimes, you know, let's have a baby. And at 62, she says, you know, it doesn't work that way. And I said, well, let's adopt one. And, you know, we're not really, I don't think that's going to happen. But... Uh, <laughs> I, I loved most of it, um, and I grew up. I grew up learning. I, I grew up in recovery. I was already in recovery. My recovery was fine, but being a dad took it to a new level because it took me out of myself in a deeper way than almost anything else had. Uh, certainly, my marriage did that, and I talked a little bit about that this morning. But parenting, in particular. Um, the worst problem I've had in recovery has been my own anger and rage. I mean, the roots of all that is all fascinating, but I'm not going to waste your time with it. I find it endlessly fascinating because it involves me, but uh, beyond that, I don't know that we need to go into it. Um, but there were a couple incidents. Uh, when he was eight years old, his mother uh, and I got into a wrangle. It was totally self-created by me out of my own compulsiveness. I had not learned then what I said this morning for those of you who are at that session, that, that unless your house is on fire, urgency is the enemy of recovery. And uh, I was being urgent about something that there was nothing, there was no need to be urgent about it. But I got into one of these ridiculous arguments and I was in the bathroom with my wife and I said to her, I'm going to kill you. Was I about to kill her? No. Could I have possibly struck her? I never have. I guess, but I was certainly going to, uh, I had already, obviously by saying that, verbally abused her, and there was more on the way, and my eight-year-old son stepped in between us and just stared at me, like, leave her alone. At which point, she and he took a long ride, and I hoped someday they'd come back, and they came back the same day. Uh, The next day, my wife said to me, every time something like that happens, a part of my love for you dies. That was probably the roughest sentence I ever heard, other than maybe when my brother told me that my dad had died. Um, And very shortly after that, uh, I started working a rage program. Um, There were a couple other incidents uh, similar to that, uh, not with, that didn't involve my wife, but that where I had directly been rageful toward my son. Um, so my son and I have a good relationship but there was always that 
thing there, and it never really got talked about much. It did when it when that happened. We all went to see a therapist. We, we worked through it in many ways. But um, about four years ago, I'm guessing, we were on a vacation, and the car rental thing had not gone well. Not going well, by the way, means someone makes me wait in a line. I don't. I don't wait in lines. I cut in lines. I don't wait in lines. And uh, I was impatient, and there was something about the trunk and the way it was loaded or not loaded, and I made some smart-aleck remark to my daughter. I, didn't, I knew it was a little out of line. I didn't think it was that bad, but it wasn't good. And my son, out of nowhere, who was not involved in this conversation at all, said, don't you treat her like that. And my wife said flipped me her cell phone and said, go make a call to someone in your program. It was not a request. Um, so I did. I calmed down. Everything seemed fine. And then that day, we were, we were heading up to the Rocky Mountains, but we were still in Denver. and uh, Or maybe it was on the way back from the Rocky Mountains. I don't know. But anyway, uh, my wife and daughter had gone off to do something, and my son and I were walking, and he was just livid with me. And uh, I said to him, is this because of what happened with, with Mary earlier? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I apologized, you know. And, he, and, and then I looked at him and I said, does this have something to do with, all, with this, these incidents that occurred, you know, probably five, ten years ago now? And he said, no, not at all. I was like, okay. And then later that day, he started talking to me about those incidents Ten years later, and uh, I made sort of an amend on the spot, but it wasn't a. It was okay. It was okay for the moment, but I knew there was more work to be done. And I worked. I did a fourth through ninth step, or fourth through seventh step, with my sponsor over the next few months. Um, and then I waited for a long time till I felt like I was ready. And then my son's a teacher. One day I asked if I could pick him up after school. He's a smart kid. He said, are you going to make an amend to me? <laughs> and I said, as a matter of fact, I am. If you'll allow me. And he said, okay. And, you know, I said to him a few things. Uh, I had made some cracks to him. Uh, he's a teacher, and my father was a teacher. And my father taught for 30 years. And my son was in, at that time, about his third year of teaching. And he said something I didn't agree with about his kids, and I quoted my father to him, which was a disastrous thing to do. Absolutely terrible. And uh, so anyway, I sat down with him, and I said, uh, there were these few incidents, and I said... uh, Something along, I don't remember exactly, but something along the lines of, um, I've had a serious anger problem my whole life. It has nothing to do with you. I would have had it no matter whether I had a son or not and no matter who that son was. And although it hasn't happened frequently, and I, and I said to him, I said, it might seem, seem like a cop-out for me to say that, but having had my parents scream at me, Seven days a week, 365 days a year for 20 years. I need to let you know that for me, having only done this three times is a big deal. Then I said to him, I understand for you, that doesn't mean crap, and that's fine with me. I said, but the reality is, I know that I've hurt you. 
I know that I've hurt you deeply. I wish I could change it, but I can't. I don't think it's going to happen again. And I particularly want to tell you, and he was, you know, clearly pleased as this was going along, pleased in the sense that like, yeah, this has been coming and I'm glad it's coming my way. Not pleased in the sense that it was a big happy moment. And, um, and then I said, the thing in some ways I feel the worst about is comparing you to my dad. I was completely uncalled for. My dad had 30 years of experience. You've had three. It was just beyond the pale. And, and you know, he just cried, you know, because <laughs> I had wounded the poor guy. <laughs> and uh, we got done, and I said, well, how was that? And he said, actually, it was perfect. It was, it was, it was, it was, it feels, it feels good. It was right. And I said, well, what do you want to do now? <laughs> he said, buy me breakfast or buy me lunch or whatever it was. <laughs> so we did, and... Um, I think that was about four years ago. It might have been three. I can't remember anymore. But whenever it was, since then my relationship with him has felt radically different. From good, but I know there's something wrong in here, to really, 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 really good. Um, my daughter, do I have time to talk about my daughter? I'm just about up. All right. Well, let me just say briefly that, um, um, you know what? I'm going to save this for tonight because I'm, I'm talking tonight. And I'm going to let Dave go. Okay. Hi everybody, I'm David. I'm a recovering sexaholic. And I've been sober since August 1st, 1985, something for which I'm frequently but never sufficiently grateful for. And I'm really grateful for this topic, um, mainly because I wanted to hear this guy's experience, strength, and hope. Um, I have two sons. Uh, one's going to be 21 and... June, and the other one will be 20 in September, and um, I haven't told my kids yet, and um, I'm ready to, and um, you know, they know that I go to these meetings, um, and I, I, I told my wife, uh, you know, I'm never going to hide the fact that I'm going to a meeting. Um, and when they ask me what the meeting is, I'll tell them. And uh, so that hasn't come up. And uh, so, but I, I, my youngest just went to uh, his, in his freshman year at a college in Chattanooga and, and uh, has joined a fraternity. And, and uh, you're not allowed to drink in Tennessee until you're 21. And uh, he's discovered that at, at, at the age of 19. And, and uh, what does that trigger in me? Gosh, it triggers fear. Do I have an issue with fear? Yeah. Yeah, as you know, I did a session on fear this morning, it's um, fear is my core. Um, you know, all my character defects are fear-based. You know, my lust, my anger. 
my judgmental spirit, my people-pleasing, my dishonesty, my pride, my gossip, my worry, my feeling that I'm not enough, um, my delusion that success at work will make me happy, my comparing myself with others, all those things are, are fear-based for me. And, uh, and I believe I have that in common with my dad. I was, I was just telling David before our meeting here that, uh, you know, I never saw anger from my dad. Um, oh, what I saw was rage. And, uh, and, and he, was a, he was a big man. And um, it was really scary when I saw that rage. And uh, later in life, um, he actually threatened my life multiple times. And, um, and it was all about our family dynamic and my relationship with my mother. And oh, <laughs> therapy really does help, by the way. Um, so um, much to my dismay, you know, as as my kids are young and and I I'm I'm still in a season of grieving them them leaving the nest. Um still tender about that. Um when they were small they seemed like they were small forever and then you turn around and they're gone. But um, I started hearing things coming out of my mouth that I heard my father say. And uh, that caused me to uh, address my anger, too. Um, and I, I knew that he had done it, and I remember him talking about it. And uh, um, so I started talking about it in meetings and uh, said, man, I, you know, I got this issue I don't, it just comes out of nowhere. And, it, I, and I know it's fear-based. Um, you know, I'm going to, somehow I'm going to screw up like my parents did. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this wrong. And, uh, you know, um, I can tell some funny stories about it. Um, but for the most part, uh, it caused me to work my program um, uh, more honestly uh, to talk about what was going on when it, when it was going on, what was triggering my fear, um, and to talk especially to my spouse about it. It, it got much better. Um, you know, I was, I was single and sober for a number of years and got married when I, a couple days after my 11th sobriety birthday. And, and so my wife tried um, S&M, but it really didn't, didn't click for her. Um, you know, the things that she was hearing at meetings didn't, didn't happen to her. And so she went for a little while and she said, you know, this just, this doesn't work for me. And I'm, part of me was like, that's because I'm so damn healthy. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, God had other plans and, and, uh, um, uh, she's a, um, a church musician and a, and a minister of music. And, and, uh, we got a new senior pastor who, uh, was an openly, uh, uh, recovering alcoholic. At least that's what he said. And, uh, after a couple of years, um, 
and she's telling me stories about what's going on at church. Um, and I'm trying to trying to give her my perspective. After a while, it was making me crazy, and I was tired of listening to it. And I said, you know, I, I really can't help you with this, but I think Al and I probably could. And um, she started going to Al-Anon. Uh, she's been going to Al-Anon for about 10 years now. It revolutionized our marriage. Um, you know, she had some codependency issues. And uh, um, it, you know, it helped things get better. Um, so uh, one of the ways I know I married into the right family is that, uh, you know, when I... Uh, one of the things that's prepared me for talking to my kids about sex and prepared me for talking to my kids about sex is um, after I told my wife or my, my uh, you know, we were getting serious and uh, she asked me why I didn't touch her. And I, and I said, well, you know, I've been praying God once a time I passed, you know, I, I taught, did a dating thing. You know, I was told you don't talk about your recovery until 10 dates. Okay, so we were we were well beyond that, and uh, she asked me why I didn't touch her, and I said, "Well, there's something about me that you need to know." And uh, we had about an hour long conversation about my recovery, and I told her that I was a recovering sexaholic, and, and the best advice I got was, uh, "Don't answer questions that aren't asked." And um, so I, I basically said, "You know, I'm." It's, it's like alcoholism. Um, you know, my, my triggers are, are fantasy and pornography. And, and uh, you know, I've been in recovery at that point for, you know, nine years. And I've been sober for that period of time. And here's what sobriety means in our fellowship. And, uh, yeah, there it is. Um, I'm still dealing with uh, a little leftover sinus infection. And... Uh, so I had an opportunity to uh, tell her about uh, sexual addiction. I gave her a pamphlet, one of our pamphlets, with the, the problem, the solution, and 20 questions. Told her that I could answer to the affirmative to about 18 out of the 20. And uh, she said, well, is there more information? And I said, yeah. And so I gave her a, a, a book. Um, it's called Out of the Shadows, and uh, and I said, you know, I'll answer any question that you have for me. And uh, the only question that she had for me, uh, first of all, she asked me what level I was, if any of you read the book. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm a level one. And uh, and the next question was the, the, the question that mattered the most to her. And she said, did your problem involve children? And I said, no. And she said, good, because, you know, it's, it, you know, I want to have a family at, at some point. And uh, that, that's really important to me. So, so we had that conversation. Not two weeks later, it was, I'm not sure exactly how much time it was, but her mother calls her and says, I've just found this great book. <laughs> and it describes my grandfather and your grandfather to a T. And it's about sexual addiction. And, and my wife said, yeah, I just, I, I just read that book. Well, why did you read that book? <laughs> and 
She said, oh, somebody that I know is involved with this. And, and um, it turns out that, you know, my, um, my father-in-law is a pastor. My mother-in-law is a pastor's wife and had been one for 50 years. And her, her gig was teaching sex education in a, in a church setting. And uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't, you know, you talk about God working in, in unbelievable ways. Um, I can't remember how long before she knew that I was a sexaholic, my mother-in-law I'm talking about. Um, and she peppered me with questions. And I, you know, I, I said, you know, I'm, I'll, I'll answer any question that you have for me. Um, so when she started, when she, um, from that point forward, when she went and gave talks to church groups, and generally she'd do it anywhere from sixth grade on, uh, she would go to churches. She, she has, I think, 26 different names for a penis. Um, she's, this woman's, this woman talks like Minnie Pearl. She grew up in Nashville. She talks like Minnie Pearl. And when you hear these words coming out of her mouth, it's just, it's just surreal, okay? Um, but she started putting her uh, pamphlets out on the table after, you know, you know, with all the literature. And um, so talking to my kids about sex, you know, we had all the material. Uh, we had these great books, uh, animated books um, that talked about body parts. I don't know why I did that, but <laughs> <laughs> Freudian slip there. But uh, um, and so at a very early age, uh, I remember the first time my son said, "I was rubbing up against myself in the bathtub." He was probably four or five. I had the most wonderful feeling that I've ever had. I said, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's normal. That's normal. And, and, and we left it go at, at that because that's what was appropriate. And you know, you know that book that we've shown you with the pictures and stuff? It talks about that kind of stuff. So um, I can't say that, you know, I did a lot of uh, one-on-one teaching with our kids, but it was, it, you know, we made that information available to them at a very early age. And uh, it reminds me of a, I'd, I'd done the dating talk at, at a conference. I can't even remember where it was now. It wasn't, I don't think it was in Nashville. And uh, some guy collared me after the dating talk, and, and, uh, and we, were, it was, we were about to go to lunch, and, and he kept talking and talking and talking. I said, well, why don't you come to lunch? And, and um, we ended up sitting down, and I had already told him, you know, you need to be sober for a number of years, and you need to have a sponsorship, and um, he, per, he sat down next to me and I, I thought we were on the same page and he said, well, I'm going to tell you why that doesn't work for me and why I'm dating. And I've only been sober for two weeks, but I know this is going to work for me. I said, son of a bitch. You know? Here this guy has collared me. I, I miss sitting with my friends and this guy's bending my ear about how, how it's going to work for him. I said, well, I said, my experience tells me differently, but God bless you. Good luck. And not, I had no longer gotten those words out of my mouth when one of my Jewish friends across the table said, so Dave, what are you teaching your kids about sex? 
And, I, and we got into this wonderful conversation. And I said, you know, my mother-in-law has this great material. I said, I'd be happy to send it to you. She, she'd love doing that. So uh, in 2000, I think this is, I, I found the envelope the other day. It's 2010. It's 10 years ago. I was shipping this Christian sex education information to a bunch of Jewish guys in New Jersey and 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 they were they were sharing it with their kids and it was it was wonderful I mean that's that's how this program works um, you know like I said I've, I've had to work on anger and rage uh, yeah I'm not sure that I would characterize it totally as rage but I know that um, my anger got the best of me in a number of situations uh, that, like like Mike, I regret. And and uh, so, for me, um, my focus as you know on being a parent was about being present. And uh, you know, my dad, God bless his heart, uh, he's been gone for. It'll be. 27 years this this year, you know, we we were able to to kind of reconcile. I took three years off from my parents um, early in my about two years into my recovery, and um, because I didn't feel safe, physically safe, and uh, I didn't know how to get out of that triangle with my mom and dad, and uh, and so I I just had to take three years off from them, and and you know we we finally reconciled after three years and never talked about why I spent three years away. We never did. Um, but after that three years, you know, when my, you know, when my dad got angry, I could, I could say to him, stop. We need to stop this right now. And I need to remove myself from this. And uh, we were able to Coexist. He only lived another three years. Uh, so, um, but I know at some level, you know, we, we had made peace with each other. And, and I, I wanted to be present for my kids. Um, and, I, it, you know, it, I, when, when we talk about fear, I, you know, what I know I had in, have in common with my dad is that he was fear-based too. And I, I believe he was horribly abused. Um, Things he told me about his relationship with his mother, I think he was horribly abused. And so I began to have compassion for my dad. It, when I started experiencing some of the, these things with these beautiful kids, you know, I, my, my first child we had uh, uh, via in vitro. So he's a miracle baby. I have a p- picture of him at eight cells. I didn't say that this morning. Um, we had one embryo when he was implanted. It was our third, third round. So I have a picture of my oldest son, Stephen, at eight cells. Um, my, second, my second son was adopted. Um, he literally got dropped into our laps. And uh, um, we have an open adoption, so we, we, you know, I got, we got a whole other family um, it, on his birth mother's side. So we, we have her. She's, she's had two kids now in a, in a, another, in a, in a marriage. Uh, my wife sang in their wedding. Um, we have her parents and grandparents um, in our lives, and so we, you know, I consider both of our kids miracle, miracle kids. And uh, 
you know, my, my role related to my recovery in my career is to, to have time to be with them and be present with them. And, uh, um, I was, I was thinking about one of the, one of the things we discovered. My youngest son, I think, was a golden retriever in another life. And, uh, he, he will, he will play ball as long as I'm willing to throw it. And it could be a baseball. It could be a football. It could be, it could be a frisbee, but he will, he will return it as long as I'm willing to throw it. Um, my other son couldn't be more different. And he has a, a, a passion for trains. We got him a train set when he was four years old. He will end up working for the railroad. Uh, that's what he's, that's what he's working to do. He loves trains. We found a place. My, my wife does a youth choir on Sunday afternoons. And, um, so it was my time to be with my sons. And, uh, we found a place where there was a, a along the railroad tracks where Andrew and I could, could throw the ball. Stephen could set up his camera and wait for the trains to come by. And when the trains would come by, I would go over and spend time with him. And, you know, it was just, you know, what a gift. What a gift. Um, I never would have had any of that had I not found this fellowship, um, gotten into recovery, gotten sober, and uh, been able to experience being a parent. So I'm anxious to hear what you guys want to talk about. And with that, we'll, why don't you go ahead and... Start reading the questions. Thanks, Dave. One of the greatest of many blessings of my recovery has been uh, many times over the years to be able to share the dais with Dave, who is one of my favorite people on planet Earth. So it's really nice. Anyway, um, that's why Dave's answering all the hard questions. <laughs> um, okay, first one, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the gist of it is you guys got seven kids, been divorced for a number of years. Some of the kids seem to be doing okay, but the older kids um, are not. says that resentment killed his marriage, and now his the two oldest kids seem, one son, one daughter, seem very resentful. There's not really a question here. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. The thought that comes to mind, the first thought that comes to mind is I don't know, but the second thought that comes to mind is time and patience that, uh, you know, um, it may seem like a long time because you've been divorced four years, but after 23 years of marriage and these kids are all adults or at least on the way to becoming adults, um, that's not a long time, and um, if you stay sober and continue to get healthier, that closeness that they're feeling may change. I don't, I don't know that it will, but it's more likely to. It would seem to me, um, if they, you know, I, I experience that when I change, my kids become more willing to approach me. Um, when I want them to change, even if my intent is good, my motives are good, it's irrelevant. They, they. Literally, my son runs the other way, and my daughter politely demurs, but it's the same result. So um, I don't know if you have anything to add on that, Dave. Okay. Uh, number two, <clears throat> would you be willing to speak about finding the balance between time with family and time with meetings? I'll let you handle that one. Yeah, so um, when I moved to Nashville, there were two meetings um, a week. And over time, what did I do with my, oh, there it is. 
gosh, my nose is running like a sieve. Um, and uh, over time, we had this very compulsive good friend of mine in recovery who I've been talking to on the phone for 30 years uh, named Judson. He now lives out in Seattle. So he, he started compulsively starting meetings. And uh, before you know it, we had, we had a ton of meetings. And uh, so I was driving to uh, about 20 miles one way from Franklin into Nashville, you know, you know four, four and five times a week to, to go to meetings. Um, but it was worth it. I mean, <laughs> I needed to be there. Um, by the time we had our uh, second child, I was down to two meetings a week, uh, one on Tuesday and one on Saturday. And, and, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was working eight hours a day. My wife, fortunately uh, with her church job was able to do most of it from home. Um, but there were a number, you know, our, our two kids were 16 months apart. You know, we prayed for twins because that was a reality when we were doing the in vitro, we didn't know what we were praying for. Um, our two were 16 months apart. And, uh, there were a couple of nights when, I'd come home and and uh, after my eight hours at work and a half hour drive home, tired, man, I just I just need to kick back here. And my wife would hand me one screaming child, and the other one would be wrapped around my my uh, leg and say, and she said, "Yeah, I'll see you in an hour. You're on." And uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm tired. And uh, so um, after. Gosh, maybe a, a year or so of that, and me um, going to my, you know, my Tuesday night and my Saturday morning. Uh, my wife finally said, "Could you, could you take Saturday off? Saturday? Could you not go to your Saturday morning meeting? Um, you know, I, I think the boys need to see you around um, on Saturday mornings." And um, you know, uh, one of the things my, my sponsor told me early in my dating life is, you know, or early in my married life was listen to the voice of God coming through your wife. My wife likes to quote that to me frequently. <laughs> Remember what Harvey says. And, uh, and so I listened. And, uh, you know, my youngest just, uh, so I've been doing one meeting a week for 20-some years, um, or 20 years, and... Uh, my youngest left left home in August, and it, it occurred to me, you know, I can go back. Um, I, you know, I get tons of phone calls, um, and I'm I'm looking forward to going back. I I I I, I would benefit from more from more meetings, but I, you know that that was something that I did um, because I wanted to be with my kids. So, so um, that's you know I I think. The, um, you know, being present um, with all my faults is so much better than what, you know, what I was exposed to with, you know, people who did their, you know, my mom and dad did their best. And, uh, you know, my mom was sexually abused by her father. He, sex, he sexually abused all three of his daughters. He sexually abused one of them into her mid to late 30s. Okay, so my dysfunction in my family, I come by very honestly. Okay, so they did the best they could, and um, and so you know, for me, parenting has been about being present. So. Yeah.
Okay. Oh, boy. I have a nephew who's 11. His mother cries to me for help because he's been caught several times looking at porn. I talked to him. He opened up about looking at porn and masturbation. I'm only on step. I can't see. I think it says four and only have nine months of sobriety. Should I work the program with him? Uh I, my gut instinct is to say, if you mean in a formal way, no. I don't think, I don't think at 11, the person's probably ready for a program. And we don't really know, I don't think at 11, if he needs a program. I think it's pretty normal for an 11 year old to be exposed to pornography. Now, where that's going to go, I don't know. And yes, it's true that there's a genetic component to our illness, but it's also true that we panic as parents the first time, you know, I worry about my son's drinking, but he's, he's, I, you know, I had to quit drinking in my 20s because I was going to kill myself. He's 31 and he seems to be doing just fine. Do I think he drinks too much? Yeah. Is he looking for help? No. Does he have a problem? I don't know. I just had to let it go at some point. You know, I had to stop showing up at events counting how many drinks my son drank. That was my problem, not his. So um, it's great that you opened up to this guy. It's great that he knows you're there if he needs you. Um, but beyond that, at this point, and I don't, I don't know that I'm right, but I'm just giving you my sort of first, first, first reaction. Anything to add to that? Okay. All right, why don't you take the next one? Do you see any benefit to talking to one's younger children, ages 12 to 18, and or making some amends for behaviors that likely impacted them? Um, You know, I, I... I, I think the uh, you know I I just had this flash of the the time I threatened to call Santa Claus and call off Christmas. Priceless. <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a bad day, <laughs> and uh, I think they I think they knew I wasn't serious, but at the time it was the only. Yeah, I was I was out of bullets, <laughs> and uh, so um, yeah, I you know I I think um, I think our, I, we can give our kids a, a lot of credit for being more observant than maybe we give them credit for, and uh, um, I think what's what's my wife and I have tried to model in our relationships is. Uh, um, making amends to each other in, in front of them, and uh, I, I, I think I knew I was making some progress when um, when I was angry at one of my one of my children and was going down a path, and he he did one of these numbers and said, "You know, if you keep going, you're going to end up telling me you're sorry." <laughs> and uh, and I said, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. I'm going to shut up, and I'm going to walk away. Um, you know, I tried. Uh, we had a kid spending the night. Um, this, this poor child had lost, his, or his parents had split up, 
His father was living in Atlanta. His mother was living here in, in Nashville. Um, he was African-American in, in a totally white you know, neighborhood. Uh, my kids bef- befriended him. And um, he was staying in our house one night. And uh, I was fearful that I was a bad parent because, you know, I tried to help my kids with their homework, but I, I was not very patient about it. And, uh, and so my wife was out, <laughs> big mistake. Uh, I'm, I, I have these three boys and, and I, I felt the kid manipulated his way to, to stay at our house. And, uh, and so I told him, you know, you can stay here on one condition. You know, everybody's going to be doing their homework. And you're going to be downstairs, and two boys are going to be in their rooms, and everybody's going to be doing their homework. Got it? Got it. You know, after about, you know, 20 minutes, uh, our visitor said, I'm done. And, uh, and my youngest said, I'm, I'm done too. <laughs> and I lost it. I lost it. And uh, I got really ugly. And uh, my kids were embarrassed. And, and, and my oldest said, why don't you go into the office and close the door? And um, I said, you're right. And, uh, you know, I, I made amends to them for, for that. Um, so, I, you know, I think you know, the, the, the short an- or the long answer that I've, I'm winding around to is, you know, it's, you know, we live a changed life. And, uh, you know, should, should the opportunity present itself to, you know, if, if a situation gets played back to you or whatever, then I, th- I think it's entirely appropriate to say, hey, you know, I was out of line and I, I regret that and I am sorry. And I hope that that will never happen again. I can't promise you that it will, won't, um, but I'm, I'm going to work on that and, and try to make that better. And, uh, um, I, and I'm sorry. And, and so I, I, that, that would be my, my response. So, got another one? Uh, how are we doing on time? <clears throat> 324. So we got six minutes? Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, so I want to add one thing on the last thing. Um, my father was a really sweet guy, but he had a real temper. And when he got mad, he would just blow. It was like Mount Vesuvius erupting. What was worse was his apologies. His apologies were so sincere, there was, there was like sweet syrup dripping off them. And it would stick to you. And you, 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 it was we, we, this, the one thing the seven of my, myself and my six siblings agree on was there was nothing worse than an apology from my dad. <laughs> Because, because quite frankly, you, you knew that as, as sincere as he was, the behavior wasn't going to change. And that's, you know, it just wasn't until he himself got sober from alcohol very late in life. So, um, yes, if I, make, if I do something wrong, I need to make an amend. But the best amend I can make is to try to correct the behavior so that I can, if not eliminate, at least minimize the repetition of it. Okay, last question that we have here. Fifth, a, a guy has a, or could be a gal, I don't know, 15-year-old intellectually disabled son 
who has told me that kids in school have been showing him porn. He's also been involved in touching and being touched with a girl in his class. I fear he will become addicted to lust. How do I handle this? Um, I don't know. Um, I mean, and the fact that he's intellectually disabled, I, I don't know how that plays in because I don't have any experience with that. The fact that he's 15 and kids have shown him porn seems to me to be par for the course. Um, I don't know if they're showing him porn as in you're one of us, in which case it doesn't make it good, but that's better than if they're sort of somehow using it to demean him in any way. I just don't have enough information. Um, he's also involved in being touched and touching with a girl in his class. Again, he's 15, so I don't know that, you know, that stuff happens at 15. And I don't know the context in which it's happening. I, I, I suspect, at least for our purposes, the central issue is the final statement, I fear he will become addicted to lust. And, um, you know, there's only so much we can do about whether our kids get addicted to anything. We can show them a life that's making it. We can, when necessary, which happens in different ways at different times, explain the programs we're in and why, and also be be working with a sponsor on that so that that disclosure isn't premature or overly selfish or more more information than needed. There's all sorts of nuances here, which makes this a tough question to answer. But, uh, you know, I desperately hope my kids don't get addicted to anything. And so far, knock on wood, so good. But if they do... Thank God there's a program of recovery for almost any addiction on planet Earth. There, there may be some new addictions popping up with all the technology and stuff that we, we haven't quite figured out yet, but, but we will. Um, there's a God. I'm not him. That's In some ways, that's the greatest blessing and also the greatest challenge for me because sometimes I wish I was. <laughs> I got a lot of good ideas, and if everybody would just kind of go along with them, I think we'd do okay here. So... Um, and at the same time, I, I control very, very little. I have a tough enough time controlling my own thoughts and emotions on a 24-hour basis with your help and with God's. So I'm not trying to cop out of the question, but I, I do think it's that fear as addicts who are finally in recovery. God, I don't want this to happen to my kids, you know. And it, it's sort of almost the opposite and yet the same as when you're a kid growing up and you see your parents who aren't in recovery and you say, I'm not going to be like them. And most of us end up being like them. And, you know, some, some of our kids are going to, dick, going to get addicted. Some of them aren't. Um, do we have some influence on that by the way we live our lives? I think so. But I don't know that we have a ton. Yeah, I won't go into a lot of detail, but... Um if it's appropriate, it may be appropriate to talk to people at school, like counselors. Um, um, I know my you know, my sister has uh, you know worked with uh, uh, challenged kids for thirty eight years, and and uh, my youngest son was um, um, sexually abused by our one of our neighbors when he was eleven years old. Uh, uh, our perpetrator, our neighbor, is, um, has spent seven years in prison for that. He touched my son and, and two other boys. Um, so 
communication, um, you know, with, you know, we, we, we let the school system know what happened to our son and these, and these other two boys. And, and, uh, um, and it was really helpful for them to understand what was going on with them. Uh, you know, he got counseling, you know, we, you know, for what this guy did, you know, um, I was amazed that he got 12 years with no opportunity for parole. Um, but it happened. And, uh, uh, fortunately my son seems to be doing well, but I, I've prayed about that every day that he, uh, since that happened, that help Andrew to recover from his sexual abuse. So, so there, there, there is a time and place to let people in authority know what's going on. And, and if you suspect that, then it, it may be time to do that. So I think with that, we need to wrap it up. Anything you have heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and traditions. And let's uh, gather in a circle and close with a third step prayer. episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for sa members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the daily reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking donate now thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of the daily reprieve Thank you.